Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches. And we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. Welcome to season six. Our first episode explores instructor identity and teaching. I interview third year PhD student Katie Gutierrez about what it means to her to be a visibly queer instructor. We talk about two texts that have influenced Katie's pedagogical practices, particularly in courses like Gender, Identity, and Rhetoric that center conversations around intersectional identity. Katie, would you like to say hi and introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sheila. Um, Yeah, so like Sheila said, I am a third-year PhD student here at SLU. I'm studying post-colonial literature, uh, feminist theory, and queer theory, and I am happy to be here. We are happy to have you. Um, So Katie, when we first started talking about uh, this episode, the content for this episode, um, one of the first things that you brought up um, was Copelson's theory of uh, cunning pedagogy. Um, So I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit through what is this um, and and why possibly do we need it? Sure, yeah. Um, So I came across this concept in um, Paul's English 5010 teaching writing course. And um, it was just a concept that really struck me at the time Basically, the the theory is Karen Copelson argues for the performance of what you could call like neutrality, basically on behalf of the what she calls the marginalized teacher subject in the classroom. So um, her theory is essentially that students in the classroom can sometimes display like resistance to a topic if they believe that the topic is linked in some way to their instructor's identity, whether that could be race or sexual orientation. Um, Coppelson, what she's basically saying is that, you know, if we really want to kind of teach for diversity and be the most effective instructors like we want to be reaching all the students even even the students that are you know resistant to maybe hearing some of the things that we're saying if if they think that it aligns with our identity so what she's suggesting is what she calls um, a cunning pedagogy so that's kind of like moving in and out of identifying with uh, whatever marginalized identity that is, or at times bringing it up, or, or at times not. She refers to it as uh, academic drag. Um. So when you first encountered this in in it was Paul Lynch's classroom. Yes. Yes. Um. So what was your first reaction to Copelson's theory? Um. I would say that I at first had kind of a knee jerk reaction to this theory, in that you know I've always felt like it it was kind of better on behalf of the student and the instructor to. To kind of you know be out in whatever form that may look like for the instructor so for me the thought of you know retreating back in the closet or being less uh visible to the student was mm-hmm. something that felt like pretty um unappealing to me when i first came across this theory but at that point i also hadn't taught yet at slu 
So having taught, I'm in my fourth semester teaching now, and um, I, I guess I would say that I feel differently about it. I think that I've used this cunning pedagogy in the classroom, and and yeah, I, I think it's something it's something worth you know looking into or you know kind of discussing in our English 1900 classes and even you know our literature classes as well. Mm-hmm. Could you give an example either from kind of your early days in 1900 or later semesters where you have used um, this kind of performance academic drag cunning pedagogy? Yeah, yeah. So the first course I taught at SLU was the English 1900 um, gender and identity class. And, you know, I think that that course is a little bit different than maybe like teaching a cross-listed um, English women and gender studies like literature class or um, maybe like a women and gender studies elective where students in that classroom um, as you know I think we've all found maybe sign up because the time worked for them but not they aren't necessarily as interested in the theme or some students maybe don't even um, realize that there's a theme at all until you know they get into that classroom so you kind of have an interesting mix in that course of students who come to that course with maybe like a background knowledge of, um, you know, gender and race and, um, you know, like identities and and students who don't at all. So I found myself um, when I was teaching English 1900 the first time kind of, uh, I guess, like straddling this line between having conversations with these students who were maybe like further along with their engagement on issues of gender, sexuality, um, things like that. And students who had never maybe like, for example, heard of the concept of, you know, gender as a continuum or a spectrum or like the difference between gender and sexuality or things like that. I would say that I brought up maybe like my identity as a lesbian and my identity as a queer scholar when I felt maybe it like furthered classroom discussion or, you know, it showed an example of me being open in the classroom in a way that students saw that and then were able to be a little bit more open in their conversations and classroom discussion as well. So one thing I definitely wanted to discuss uh, was the relationship between this theory of cunning pedagogy and institutional authority. I know Coppelson mentions that she initially wrote the piece as a graduate instructor and was very aware of her institutional precarity, her status as a relatively new instructor, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, in, in certain introductory courses where students might have um, a varied familiarity with or, or comfort with uh, particular uh, subject materials. So I'd love to get your perspective um, as a graduate instructor yourself about how you see um, um, that status as a graduate instructor in, in particularly aligned with uh, cunning pedagogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it it aligns itself pretty well in that, you know, as graduate st- instructors, we kind of have to walk this line between, um, you know, being granted authority from our students, but then, you know, not wanting to take like this absolute authoritative stance in the classroom. Um, but also, you know, being closer in age to the students that we're teaching. Um, for me, it's, you know, being um, a woman in, in the classroom as well. Like, so, you know, we kind of have to straddle all these different types of lines. And it makes sense that Coppelson would would write this um, would write this article, you know, thinking of ways that, you know, you can kind of gain additional classroom authority or ways to um, embrace 
maybe the authority that students are granting you um, thinking along the lines of being a graduate instructor. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely one of the reasons why I went ahead and kind of used it in my own classroom as well. Uh, Like we talked about, you know, I think it's really different when thinking about the reasons that students are taking the course. So, you know, maybe this is their only time ever engaging in questions of like gender or thinking about marginalized identities in a classroom, like their entire time at SLU, you know, they might not ever take a course that's, you know, similar, at least partly uh, along that line of, you know, that topic. So um, I found it useful. Yeah. (laughs) No, I totally, I get what you're talking about when it comes to uh, especially as a first-time instructor and as a woman, I remember the first time I taught a composition course. As a graduate student, I think I was 24, um, and so of my comparison to into these freshmen that I had. And you know, it's always a question of you know what what you wear in the classroom, how you present, what kinds of when it comes to kind of the embodied performance of teaching, the ways in which you are trying to signal both a sense of authority that doesn't feel too artificial, right? That's um, um, that you that is it is such a kind of delicate and terrifying balance in the beginning. Yeah, no, no, it definitely is. I mean, it you know it sounds silly, but you know for myself as someone who's four feet eleven inches tall, like you know I'm also shorter than most of my students too. So it's you know kind of another notch on the side of something you have to go against um, when you're trying to like um, embrace that authority in the classroom. Yeah, in a way that isn't inauthentic. So yeah, one of the other uh, kind of alternate theories I know that you mentioned um, was Prasad's notion of burdens of belonging um, as a kind of alternative to Coppelson's um, uh, theory of cunning pedagogy. Could you could you discuss that a little? Yeah, yeah. So um, this comes from uh, the uh, feminist teacher, and um, so this this was published uh, quite a few years after. Um, Cobbleson's piece, which was uh, published, I think, in 2003. And this one, um, I want to say, is just a few years old. So um, in thinking about maybe like the differences between um, these two pieces, it's also, you know, good to keep in mind that there are like many, many years (laughs) in between both of them. Um, But yeah, so um, Prasad has this this notion, um, what she terms the um, burdens of belonging. And it for her she kind of categorizes these as um the authority that's like granted to the instructor um on behalf of them belonging to you know whatever that marginalized category is um kind of like what Coppelson's refers to in her piece so you know whether that be um yeah like we said you know someone's race um sexual orientation um gender so things like that. But basically um, what Prasad is saying is that um, so the authority is a granted to the instructor, you know, whether or not they're kind of seeking it. And, you know, sometimes it can be a negative thing. Sometimes it can be a positive thing. But either which way it it is, she looks at it as like this burden that's kind of um, given to the instructor. Um, yeah, for that reason, basically. And so how has Prasad's theory um, kind of influenced um, your teaching, especially in classes like English 1900, Gender and Identity? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, int- it's a, it's like 
maybe like the opposite coin or not the opposite mm-hmm. coin, but um, it's it's a different point of view on, you know, the the, the same notion that Coppelson is talking about, whereas um, uh, Prasad is saying, you know, like she uses the example of um, her uh, being born in India and she was teaching a um, a gender in India course. And so the students just automatically um, look to her to be like, in authority on um, this topic and and someone of authority just in general on, you know, all of the country of India or, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that. So, um, I mean, it's interesting in that, yes, that could have, you know, proved to be useful for her in that course, but just because, you know, your identity matches alongside the subject matter that that you're teaching, it doesn't inherently mean that you're necessarily like more of an expert on like that very specific subject or like you're more of an expert on teaching it to the in in relation to your the course basically yeah I I think it just kind of maybe like troubles the notion of claiming that authority or not basically Mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah so if cunning pedagogy is almost downplaying right your association between identity and subject material uh, for specific pedagogical purposes, then Prasad is thinking, yeah, about the the kind of burdens of being a visible uh, kind of uh, or assumed expert um, in a particular subject area uh, because of visible markers of your identity. Absolutely. Yeah. Assumed expert or um, maybe assumed not expert I guess you I guess you could say so like so you know the other side of that would be you know um not being granted that authority based on um your identity as well so mm-hmm. yeah she she just discusses that a little bit too so um yeah so I think she maybe like takes it one step further um mm-hmm. from from Coppelson's argument um for sure Interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to discuss that question of visibility, um, especially in the context of uh, Prasad's focus of sexuality on one of as one of several categories right, that per- pertain to burdens of belonging. Um, so w- what it means to be visibly queer in a classroom, right, when it is a little bit more of a semiotic tango, depending on, of course, both the instructor in question and particular assumptions or perceptions of the student. Um, so I was wondering if, if you want to talk a little bit about um, navigating kind of what it means to be visibly queer in a classroom in a way that Prasad might uh, theorize. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, uh, in my experience, so maybe like a good example would be um, when I was um, in undergrad, I uh, was in a course, um, I think it was it was uh, like a queer literature course. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting because, you know, we had the, the topic of like, uh, lesbian literature come up um I think it was you know the well of loneliness or um mm-hmm. in that course and you know the instructor posed some question about like the lesbian experience and you know every you know 25 students just turned and you know like looked you know at me <laughs> directly okay, to, you yeah. know like to answer that question and you know that mm-hmm. that's super uncomfortable and like it's uncomfortable. Yeah, you are now the representative of all lesbians. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is fine. But um, yeah, it's it's uncomfortable in a way um, to speak on behalf of, you know, whatever your marginalized identity is. But, you know, on the flip side, I think it's, you know, courses that maybe are um, predominantly filled with, you know, white, cis, um, straight students, like intentionally making room for like marginalized voices to be heard 
is, mm-hmm. you know, like a good thing, right? But but it's uncomfortable right. to like have that placed on you. So I, I right. don't know. I mean, it, it for me, like being very visibly queer, um, being a butch woman in front of the classroom. Um, yeah, I mean, like I know it signals to my students something that maybe um, someone who was, you know, is femme, it, you know, doesn't signal to them or, or maybe based on whatever the student's assumptions are, <laughs> basically, you know, maybe slips under their radar or things like that. Right. So it's something like I'm always aware of, you know, when you when you talk about um, things that, you know, getting dressed in the morning to mm-hmm. as like a 24 year old graduate instructor, you know, and trying to like embrace authority or like, you know, knowing that whatever you wear um, as, you know, a woman is going to be maybe criticized a little bit more in a way that a man <laughs> wouldn't be. Yeah, it, it, it's something that I'm always aware of. But I think for me, I would rather embrace that instead of wear something or display something to my students that felt inauthentic, because I think mm-hmm. students can see that and like, see right through it also. So um, I, you know, also just going back to my own experiences in undergrad, um, and throughout my master's, like, I remember all of, you know, the visibly queer professors I have. It w- was something that did fundamentally, you know, change my, my experience in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of remember that as I get dressed in the morning also, I guess. Right. <laughs> no, it does. And I think your point about kind of the balance between, making room for making space for uh particular voices in the classroom without um kind of non-consensually deputizing them right to be the voice uh, of a particular community or identity is incredibly important um for instructors generally especially in the writing curriculum in thinking about how they are making space for students without again kind of deputizing them to communicate a particular perspective absolutely i mean i i I feel like I try to pose questions to my class that aren't necessarily directed towards a certain group or, you know, a a certain group of students or something like that, but just very, like, broadly speaking and and hoping that, you know, maybe those students would speak up or feel comfortable um, talking in the classroom. But, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to do. Like, right. (laughs) And, yeah, like you said, nobody wants to be the speaker of all queer people or no one wants to be the speaker necessarily. <laughs> Great. So I was wondering if you could give me an example kind of on on the granular level when it comes to teaching courses like gender identity and literature, um, how you kind of pose these questions or prompts that you give to students when they're either teaching um, in a whole class or in small groups, especially given, um, you know, that we are teaching hybrid or virtual courses. Um, and so scripting, right, and being very specific about um, uh, the types of, of uh, uh, participation or comments, right, is really important. Um, so I was wondering if you could give me an example of how you uh, kind of provoke that kind of conversation um, in the kind of most equitable way. Yeah, um, I think for me, one of my kind of first prompts when we're um, diving into a little bit more sensitive material is just kind of trying to get um, first responses from the students um, regarding the material. So just to kind Mm -hmm. of um, maybe like test the waters to see where everyone is um, after um, engaging with that material. So I I think one example would be, um, so last semester when I taught um, 
uh, gender identity and lit, uh, we we read um, Chinelo Okparanta's Under the Udala Trees, and um, that was a novel um, that focused around um, a a lesbian character that was uh, in located in Nigeria, kind of going through um, the Biafran War and uh, dealing with the aftermath of that war. But there were a lot of scenes of, you know, like LGBT violence, uh, well, violence against um, LGBT individuals. And also, um, I mean, yeah, so in, in dealing with maybe like talking about those scenes or um, discussing like contextually um, some of the issues that we were dealing with, like I knew it was going to be um, sensitive for the students, especially the students that um, were either Nigerian or um, members of the LGBTQ community. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to gauge kind of where the classroom was at after, you know, we read scenes like that. But but then, you know, I I I tried to ask um, broad questions about maybe like interpreting the material or um, broad questions based on what the students had expressed to me um, about the material. And so the conversation just kind of branched from there. I wasn't expecting certain students to, you know, be uh, to speak on behalf of all you know, like marginalized voices when we right. when we covered that topic. But um, because I think the students felt comfortable with me and felt comfortable with um, the other students within the class, they did share a lot more personal things regarding maybe like that sensitive subject matter that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise based on the way um, I had kind of structured the classroom up until that point, if that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so important in order for those conversations to flourish, a sense of a kind of classroom trust and intimacy is one of the most important things. Um, so speaking of which, is there anything you do at the beginning of the semester to try and establish that environment before you dive into these texts? Um, I So I do kind of talk about how, you know, the classroom is a safe space. Um, I, well, when back when we had in-person classrooms, um, mm-hmm. I would pass out a um, index card to each of the students and um, ask them to just write whatever they um, would like me to know, like about themselves um, before we began the semester. Um, mm-hmm. And then I always try to include, you know, my gender pronouns and um, ask the students specifically for theirs through the through the note card to not put them on the spot um, especially you know any trans students if, if but um, yeah so I try to like ground the classroom in that but then I also you know looking at these gender identity and literature courses I felt like I shared a lot of you know this was my experience reading the text and that prompted students to maybe share theirs in a way that um, they may not have previously um, had I not shared things about myself or like mm-hmm. what I felt when I engaged with the text. 
Absolutely. I think it's so important to model those responses, especially when the response is sometimes not what they consider uh, scholarly, right? If I say like, oh, I had a, a lot of trouble with this section, right? Or, um, you know, this is a section that just made me profoundly sad, right? To, to kind of model those initial responses as part of a, a kind of long-term literary discursive process, right? That, um, that, that needs to be shared in the classroom, right? But only once you kind of have that sense of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell all my students when we engage with poetry, you know, that it's not my strong suit. And you know, it's okay for them to read the poem a few times. In fact, I encourage it or like, you know, this is how I take notes when I read poems. So yeah, definitely. I just sharing things like that, hopefully, um, helps them feel a little bit, uh, maybe more confident <laughs> if, if, mm -hmm. if I share that, you know, I also, I too <laughs> find poetry confusing. <laughs> so I think my last question for you would be to, to see what, um, advice you would have or, or things you would like instructors, um, to think a little more about, especially when it comes to instructor identity and pedagogy. Um, we've talked a little bit about kind of some of the, um, kind of questions or theories or kind of navigational strategies um, that kind of you as a, a queer instructor, right, are, are kind of constantly thinking about navigating. Um, are there things that you would recommend that um, other instructors kind of put a little bit more time or reflection um, into considering when it comes to either their own identity or student identity in the classroom? Yeah, yeah, I think just generally speaking, maybe keeping in mind like the breadth of identities um, mm -hmm. or like the scope of identities within the classroom. Um, you know, I know I've had students come up to me after class or, you know, share things like, you know, personal things with me um, that I guess you just never know like what a student is going through. So, you know, maybe trying to keep all of that in mind <laughs> while juggling all the other balls that we are required to juggle as, as grad students and graduate instructors here. But um, yeah, I, I think sometimes it's easy to, to maybe speak to the majority in the classroom, but, but mm -hmm. we can't maybe forget the, the marginalized voices that are in the classroom as well. So I, it, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily have one good solid piece of advice other than that. No, and I think it's really helpful to kind of have these theories kind of on the board. I'm thinking back to kind of my own pedagogical instruction and so much of it, you know, is, is thinking about structuring courses or assignments. Um, and there's not always this discussion of kind of the, the pedagogical performance, right, and theories of um, disclosure or transparency um, and, and its relation, right, to identity and precarity. I think those are, are really important uh, parts of kind of any sort of pedagogical conversation or training, um, especially in higher education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, we put so much focus in on our syllabus or you know, the way our course is structured or, or you know, certain articles and, and essays that we, we pick out for the course. But um, I think these things are, are just as important when, when we're structuring our classroom. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our, our very first episode of the season, Katie. Is there anything else that you wanted to um, bring up? No, uh, thank you for having me. This was great. I'm happy to be um, the season opener. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much again. It was great having you here. And I look forward to talking about this more. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. Now I'm going to
Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.